Mina san, konnichiwa, and welcome to the Board Game Dojo Lecture Series, where we use science and history to learn more about board games and the people who play them. My name is Eric. Thank you so much for joining us, whether it's your first episode, you listen to every episode, or somewhere in between. We sincerely, sincerely, sincerely appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to our little podcast. It's been a while since we've done a scholarship episode. These take a long time to do, so I hope you enjoy this one. Today, we are talking about one of the biggest bugbears in gaming, analysis paralysis. Why does it happen? What kinds of games or features of games tend to invoke this kind of reaction? And what can games do to avoid it? This was an awesome lecture to put together. I've spent the last two months researching for this, and I hope you enjoy it. Before we begin, I just want to ask a slight favor because I'm so bad at marketing. So if you enjoy this, tell your friends about it. Leave a review, subscribe on your podcast feed, whatever you feel like. Any little bit helps us out, and we want to continue bringing you awesome guests and content for 2024. So now get your favorite caffeinated beverage, maybe a warm blanket, your notebook and a pencil, because class is now in session. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. These morning classes are not anyone's favorite. I don't think it's nine in the morning. I see some of you with Starbucks. It's cherry blossom season. So I know that they have some drinks with that. Anyone drinking one of those? A couple of you? Yeah, I can see that bright pink frappuccino from here. Good choice. Good choice. Speaking of good choices, thank you for being here today in class, deciding that my lecture was worth your time. I hope you feel that way still, you know, when we are finished with class. You chose to be here and I thank you for that. In fact, let's actually think for a moment. It's nine in the morning here. The day hasn't been too long for a lot of us, I think. And yet, how many decisions have you already made today? I'll give you a few seconds to think about that. Well, for one, you got out of bed. That's an accomplishment in and of itself. Some of you, as mentioned, got Starbucks, but you didn't just choose what you had at Starbucks. You also chose whether or not to go to Starbucks, right? Others maybe decided not to go, but still thought about it. For us, this is just a fun exercise, something to warm up our brains on this chilly morning. But depending on the job of people, some take this question very, very seriously. When we were thinking, how many of you came up with that you made the decision of what to wear today? Okay, yeah, I mean, none of you walked in here naked, which is good, so everyone decided at least to put on something, thank you. Some of you maybe overslept and just threw something on. Some of you look like you've got plans today, hair done, looking nice. Maybe some of you have dates after class. I know, nothing puts you quite in the mood for romance like a class about game design. But some important people have, in their lives, chosen not to have to make that exact decision every day. Mark Zuckerberg is definitely not known as a fashion icon, much because he wears the same thing every day. When he was president, Barack Obama told reporters he only had suits in two colors, so he didn't need to make that decision. But why? Well, let's start off by thinking about it like a game. You start off your level with 100 decision points, and you only have those for that level. Let's call that level a day. Each decision you make costs decision points. Easy decisions cost maybe one point, but the more you have to think about it, the more points it costs. So say you have a test today at noon, or an interview. Well, you better have some decision points saved up for that, right? But what happens if you actually used up a lot of those decision points in the morning? Say you spent five points deciding on what shirt you're going to wear or what pants, or does that shirt really go with those pants and do they go with those shoes? And then you spend a few more at Starbucks where you were planning on getting a regular coffee, which is a mistake because Starbucks black coffee is probably the worst. But then you saw they had the Sakura 
frappuccinos and you were like, oh no, should I get that instead? And the answer is yes, you should. So all these little decisions add up to the point that by the time you need to make your big decision, you need an hour of focus. You've actually burned up your decision point inventory. This general concept, although I put it in different terms, is called decision fatigue, and has been studied extensively ever since it was first coined by Roy F. Baumeister, who was a very influential social psychologist in the study of willpower, among other things. The basic premise is pretty straightforward. The more decisions we make, the more our decision-making quality deteriorates. We've used up our decision points. It's why Obama said, hey, I have so many important decisions to make every day. I cannot spare any points for clothing. If you remember back to our sponsored content lecture, we talked about persuasion resistance and that marketers have found that bombarding us with products wears us down. We make lots of decisions. And by the time we leave the store, our ability to make the smart, logical decision not to buy the candy bar, well, it has worn down. I said decision fatigue has been studied extensively, and a lot of this has to do with another field in which people are making life and death decisions every day. Doctors. How do we avoid this? Sounds pretty bad, right? How do we make sure a doctor near the end of their shift is just as good at making surgical decisions or accurately diagnosing cancer as they were at the beginning of their shift? One of the most famous repeated studies of this phenomenon is the prison system. Now, you can argue about what purpose the prison system has in society. Is it punishment? Is it rehabilitation? But whatever you believe, there is the fact that there is often a parole system based on the prisoner's sentence. The decision to be allowed out on parole is made by a parole board during a meeting, and that meeting time is assigned randomly throughout the day. However, these studies have found that the would-be parolees that were scheduled for their hearing in the morning were much more likely to be granted parole than those in the afternoon, through no fault of their own. No, it was simply decision fatigue on the part of the judges. They had to make so many of these decisions in the morning that by the afternoon, they were worn down. Instead of being able to think about it, they resorted to the default response, which in the prison system is denial of parole. We as human beings tend to say, hey, I want more choice, but what this study seems to suggest is that, among other behaviors, we got exactly what we thought we wanted, the ability to make decisions at every turn. It's our choice. But the fact is, as Baumeister and his co-authors mentioned, that although when we lack the option for choice, we fight for them, having an overwhelming amount of them can actually be psychologically harmful in our daily lives, in our jobs, and for our success. And this choice paradox is where I end my introduction for today's class, because this choice paradox is what we are going to delve into today. What is too much choice? How do our brains react to choice? What is this thing in games called analysis paralysis, where people are so overwhelmed by choice in a game that they just freeze and can't make a decision? And how, as game designers, can you avoid this happening? You have someone in your class or at work that you hate just can't stand them. Or maybe you broke up or something? That's not fun. But honestly, what's worse is when you're in a meeting with them or class with them and they say something that's genuinely funny or genuinely smart and you have to go, ugh, I hate that I'm laughing right now or ugh, I hate that was a very smart thing you just said. Okay, I'm getting some nods. Cool, not just me. Well, I'm that way with Sigmund Freud. Yes, I'm aware of how important he is and was for psychology, but man, I don't like him very much. But our story today, our story of decision fatigue and choice paradox, it actually dates all the way back to him and his idea of the ego and mental energy. 
Basically, his ideal was that our egos are controlled by mental activities which require energy transfers. And there's only so much to go around. So if you're using up your psychic energy for your conscience, you aren't able to use the energy to control your impulses or things like that. So we had Freud talking about this, and some people study it for things outside the purview of this lecture, but it is most noteworthy for today because it was this very model that inspired Baumeister. And you can see this in the terms that he uses in his works. He calls it ego depletion. And the entire point, the very thing I want you to remember about decision fatigue is that it posits that our brains are very much like our muscles and that we only have a finite amount of energy for them. And by performing functions like decision-making, self-regulation, or resisting temptations, like when we exert our muscles, we deplete that resource. We become tired and less able to function. Now, when I was researching for this lecture, I came across a meta-analysis from 2020 that looked to clarify decision fatigue, and it found that 43% of the articles it looked at all used definitions from only three papers. And reading those papers, it's easy to see why. Two of them are quite simple, so easily applicable to any paper. But the last one for the bit of harshness and truth, and it comes from Tyranny et al. 2011. No matter how rational and high-minded you try to be, you can't make decision after decision without paying a biological price. The more choices you make throughout the day, the harder each one becomes for your brain, and eventually it looks for shortcuts. Ooh, alright, so this happens to everyone. And in the grand scheme of psychology, this route of research is fairly new. Bowmeister's seminal paper was published in 1998, and from there, you can almost see the delineation of where people took this work. You see it where I already talked about in health psychology, how can we use the research to better help doctors and nurses and thereby the patients they see. You see it in sports psychology from how water polo players become less accurate or shot variety goes down in tennis as people resort to their default shots. But today, we are going to follow it down its path into business, marketing, and economics. Yes, we've already touched on it a bit with the persuasion resistance system. In fact, many people group in decision fatigue with what they call the persuasion resistance system. That decision fatigue is what happens when our resistance system is completely worn down. And how do you do that? Well, you give people what they want. And what they want is choice. Not just one choice, not two choices, many choices. At least... That's what they want in theory. Let's start off with probably my favorite person we will talk about today, Dr. Sheena Iyengar. She noticed that the amount of choice, mostly because it's what the people want, was getting kind of crazy. In the introduction to arguably one of the most famous studies in psychology ever, and definitely in the past 25 years, she writes about how ice cream chains were advertising how many ice cream flavors they had at any one time, a nod to Baskin Robbins, or as it's called in Japan, 31 and how fast food chains were advertising how it was up to you. You could have it your way. She was interested in what effect this would have on consumers, and thus we got the famous study. When choice is demotivating, can one desire too much of a good thing? Or as it's most commonly called, the jam study. In it, they had grocery store shoppers at a pretty good-sized grocery store sample gourmet jam. In one condition, they had a nice-looking table with 24 different kinds of jam. Customers could taste test as many jams as they wanted, and they were given a coupon to purchase that brand of jam. Cool deal. The other condition was a nice-looking table with only six kinds of jam. Again, customers could taste test as many jams as they wanted, and then were given a coupon. Now, they measured two things here. The first was attractiveness. As was expected, the table with 24 kinds of jam was much more popular. If a brand had 24 kinds of jam, I'd be interested too, and a little 
bit suspicious. That's too many kinds of jam in my book. But the second thing they measured was how likely the customers were to actually buy the jam. This was the astonishing part. Not only were people more likely to make a purchase after the six jam table than the 24 jam table, but it was a tenfold difference with only 3% of people making the purchase after going to the 24 jam table and 30% making the purchase after going to the six jam table. But she wasn't done, folks. It also happened, weirdly enough, with 401k plans. Employees were offered choices that the company would match to put money into their retirement plan. So it's something you should do, financially speaking. They found that the more choice people had of which plan they could choose, the less likely they were to actually choose something. That's right, they just didn't do anything. There was so much information that they just choose to do nothing. And we call this a nah, just kidding, it's choice overload. We aren't there yet, hold tight. It's around this time that these studies start making the jump to popular psychology thanks to a book by Barry Schwartz titled The Choice Paradox. He did a TED Talk about it that at the time of this lecture has 5.8 million views on YouTube, even though it looks like it was filmed using a microwave oven. In fact, Schwartz really through the 2000s was the choice paradox person people knew. Now, I'm going to do a bit of fast forwarding through some other Iyengar studies and those by others as well as what Schwartz talked about. I'm going to kind of Frankenstein them into a hypothetical study to talk about many of the things we find out about this choice paradox. So let's say I'm visiting my in-laws up in Niigata and I want to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. They have the peanut butter, they have the bread, but they don't have any jam. <sighs> well, time to go to the store. You know what sounds good? Raspberry jam. I freaking love raspberry jam. I go to the 7-Eleven or the Lawson convenience store and I go to the condiments and they only have like four kinds of jam. I see strawberry and grape and marmalade. Wait, really? Marmalade? Weird. Didn't know Paddington Bears shopped here. Ah, there we go. Raspberry jam. Sweet. Literally. I feel pretty good. I found what I wanted and now I'm looking forward to my sandwich. I go home and there are a couple ways this could go, right? It could be good and I'm pleasantly surprised at the convenience store quality jam. It could be just okay and I'm like, Eh, at least I got what I wanted. That was perfectly decent raspberry jam. Or it could taste bad, and I'm just mad at the brand. Like, how could you destroy raspberry jam? It's like chicken nuggets. You gotta try really hard to mess up this badly. And I make a note never to trust that brand again. That's scenario A. Scenario B is that I go to Eon, which, if you don't live in Japan, this is the major grocery store in many areas. And I go to the condiment aisle, and holy smokes, okay, I've got some choices. I've got raspberry jam, but wait, there's like a whole row of raspberry jam. I've got plain old raspberry jam. I've got raspberry preserves. I've got raspberry jelly. Wait, what the heck is the difference between those two? I don't even know. I've got strawberry raspberry, fat-free raspberry, sugar-free raspberry, organic raspberry. I've got a picture of someone blowing on someone's stomach. And finally, a fruit rouge combination from France, apparently, of strawberry, raspberry, and cherry. Well, dang, what am I feeling like? I could be adventurous, try something new could be healthy and get sugar-free. Hmm, I think I'm just gonna go with the plain old raspberry jam. Besides, that's what I came for. I'm feeling like maybe I should have picked differently as I walked to the checkout, but no, it's okay, I've, I've got this. I've bought my raspberry jam, but man, maybe I, I have gained weight and I should have done the fat-free. Oh well, too late now. I head home and make my sandwich, and again, we get the three possible scenarios, barring any kitchen mishaps. It could be good, okay, or bad, but here's the thing. If it's good, I won't be as satisfied because I will wonder if those other choices were even better. If it's okay or bad, 
I don't only feel bad about my choice, but I will blame myself. So to summarize these two situations, with more choice, I started doubting my choice immediately after my decision in the supermarket in the more choice scenario, but was content when there was less choice. Then, even if it was a good choice, I wasn't as satisfied with the outcome. And then, if it was an okay or bad choice, I don't blame the company for making an average or below average jam, I blame myself for making the wrong choice. Ooh, rough. Now, as you can imagine, this was met with quite the reaction, especially with businesses. Were, were we making a mistake by offering so much choice? Are our customers not as willing to make a purchase when we give them so many variants? Did we reach what writer Alvin Toffler predicted in the 1970s that we would come to a time where people would suffer from paralysis of choice? Well, before we get into full-blown panic, let's do a little bit more investigating. Let's go back to what I said earlier, and let's sum it up into one statement. People were generally more content with their choice immediately after and later when there was less choice than more choice. Now, for your final exams, you're going to need to design a study, and one avenue is to further investigate a previous result by honing in on one aspect of it. So let's take this one. What are some possible avenues to go down from the statements I just made? Maybe why are people so discontent with their choices when there is a lot of them? But on the flip side, why are people so content when there's not a lot of choice? What other questions can we ask besides why? Yeah? Yeah, who? Who are we studying? Adults? Kids? And it kind of goes hand in hand, but where are we studying? Maybe this is a cultural thing, right? Ah, sorry, sorry. I saw you put your hand on us. I stole yours, right? Sorry. But yes, very good. Cultural values and things, right? How about when? Do you think that situations can differ? Of course. And finally, I guess we can round it out with what? What? What are we studying? Maybe what it actually is makes a difference. So you see how you can design a bevy of studies under just a simple summarization of years of research. And of course, this is what happens. I think because of his book, and he is still a very outspoken economic psychologist, Barry Schwartz is probably the one people associate with choice and the choice paradox as he called it. The paradox being we think we want choice, but we aren't happy when we have it because there's just too much. But it's not just him. I already mentioned Dr. Iyengar, but there's quite a bit going into choice research. Let's try to answer some of these questions we posited earlier, shall we? How about what? Does what we are deciding on make a difference? Yeah, quite possibly. And of course, this also is affected by culture. Let's go back to Dr. Iyengar. She and her team interviewed parents in the US and in France. Now, she interviewed them one year after they had to make the unimaginably difficult decision to take their newborns or infants off of life support. Now, in France, this decision is actually made entirely by the doctor. In the US, this decision is made by the parents. But the study found that the parents were less angry, better able to cope, and were less prone to depression in France than in the US. In France, a common response would be something akin to, they maybe really changed our lives in a short time. But in the US, parents were more likely to think and answer in the interview, what if? What if they could have lived? What Iyengar and her colleagues suggested was that maybe this means that it could be beneficial to not have the choice, or really to have important choices made by someone else knowledgeable in that situation. So, in this case, the doctor should choose the best medical decision. Okay, that's a really hard one to start with, so let's talk about something else, shall we? Let's talk more about culture. As you're going to see here, a common denominator in these studies has to do with the US because, let's be honest, one of the slogans of the country is about freedom of choice. One would be the activities that kids do. Iyengar did a study in Japantown in San Francisco, and she divided the kids into three groups. On the table were word puzzles, anagrams, pens, sounds like a fun afternoon, and I'm almost 30. 
One group could choose what they wanted to do and how they wanted to do it. Another group got told by the teacher, Ms. Smith, what to do. The third group got told what to do, but was told it was what their moms wanted them to do. Now, let's throw in one more key variable, where the kids and their parents were from. There were two groups of cultural backgrounds, the Anglo-American background and the Asian background, which consisted of kids from either Japanese or Chinese families who spoke their parents' native language at home. What do you think happened? Well, I can tell you one thing, neither group very much appreciated being told by Ms. Smith what she wanted them to do. The kids from both cultural backgrounds who were in that group did the worst. They didn't play for very long, and they didn't do well. Probably an interesting result for the future education psychologists in here. But the other groups were where we saw variants, as I think some of you probably expected. The Asian kids did a lot better when told their moms wanted them to do it. One kid even told Ms. Smith to please tell her mom that she did it very well, just as her mom wanted. The Anglo-American kids did not do well when they were told that their moms wanted them to do it, feeling like it was impeding in their playtime. Instead, they did way better when left to their own devices and allowed to pick what they wanted. A lot of that has to do with cultural values. In Confucianism, which is very prominent in Chinese culture, and prominent but less so in Japanese culture, there is a very strict filial piety in which you respect and listen to your parents. Family love comes first, and then it kind of resonates outwards. So hey, kids did what their moms wanted to do, satisfying that cultural value. The Anglo-American kids, on the other hand, were brought up in what Robert Bella called a civil religion. Now, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole if you're interested. There are numerous online lectures on civil religion, but the basic concept is that America has a quasi-religion that is basically America. Scholars have argued since his paper about what this includes, but pretty consistently includes the Declaration of Independence as an important document, American as a beacon of hope and goodness in the world, and of course, freedom, especially freedom of choice. So, like Confucianism, which isn't so much of a religion as I think many people think about religions, but more like an ethical or maybe philosophical system, a guide of how to live, well, the Anglo-American kids had a quasi-guide of how to live as well. In both systems, they just did what they were taught in their cultures to do. Now, if you want to read more about these studies, they are in the book The Art of Choosing, which is a great read. I can't hide my academic crush of Dr. Iyengar, but I just prefer her writing to the others on this issue. Not that Dr. Schwartz isn't good, I just like grounded writing styles. So, with these studies, as you define more and more of what is going on, you start to also see studies that don't seem to support what is going on. I always tell students that, hey, you need to be clear in your research methods. Why? Because it has to be replicable. Now, one of the things that makes psychology and sociology different than chemistry or biology is that replicability doesn't have to be perfect, but it does need to at least show the same basic effect. Well, the problem was the JAM study, well, it wasn't very good at being replicated and showing that same basic effect. In fact, as more and more studies were coming out, people started to doubt whether this was even a consistent effect at all. Some studies supported, some didn't, some showed that it could be accounted for this or that, or maybe it was random. One person is mostly associated with criticisms of choice overload, Benjamin Scheibenhain. In 2010, Scheibenhain published his meta-analysis critiquing the consistency of the phenomenon of choice overload in studies done up until this point. Now, it's important to understand the point of a meta-analysis because it not only serves a great purpose for researchers, but also if you want to get a good fundamental basis on a subject. The point of a meta-analysis is often to summarize a bunch of relevant studies, and sometimes it stops there, but other times this leads to that person doing further statistical analysis on that data. This helps us identify trends in the research, and we can often use them as a starting point to say, okay, what's been going on in this area for the last five years, 10 years, however long? Now, this meta-analysis by Scheibenhain said, hey, 
we have analyzed 50 studies and seen an average effect size of pretty close to zero. Lots of variants, but maybe this phenomenon isn't actually something reliable. Now, he does caveat by saying there could be modifying factors, but up until that point, none of them had proven significant. But hey, maybe in the future. Now, this was met both with praise and criticism from the community, as you would expect. Standing here in 2024, I see both good and bad things that came from this meta-analysis. To start with, we always talk about supporting a hypothesis or not supporting a hypothesis, right? I know a couple of you have been mad at me for docking points because you wrote down that the goal was to prove your hypothesis, but that's what makes social science so exhilarating and sometimes frustrating. We aren't out here trying to prove something because a lot of the time it isn't provable because it isn't true 100% of the time. Well, at this point, because of the book tours and popular psychology articles and TED Talks and everything, the general population had kind of taken choice overload to be a proven commodity. What this meta-analysis did, partly because it made waves online, was pump the brakes a little bit. Like, whoa, 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 let's investigate this a bit more. But there's also a bit of weird choice taken in how he approached finding the statistics. Why a mean average? especially with such a large variance that can drive these findings harshly in one way or the other. And what happens with mitigating circumstances in these situations, where choice might convert someone into a buyer or cause them not to become one? Nonetheless, this meta-analysis is an important one because it caused more researchers to delve in like we did earlier. What are these mitigating circumstances? Why are people happier with fewer options? Is there something else going on here? Did we think something was an effect when it was actually a cause or vice versa? So let's back it up a bit to what we were talking about earlier, because this was a route that researchers went down. We picked the sentence apart, that people are happier with fewer choices, but frantic with more. But instead of saying, why are people happier with fewer choices in a general sense, let's ask ourselves, is there an underlying mechanism going on here that makes a decision easier than one would expect? So let's make this an example. Say you are going to the movie theater, you want to see Zendaya and Timothy Chalamet in Dune Part 2, and you figure this thing is going to be long. So you know what? I need some popcorn. Awfully overpriced, but hey, studies have shown it increases your enjoyment of the movie. Next question. What size are you going to get? Small, medium, or large? You take a look at the prices ready to be ripped off. All right. Small is $4, and that's two scoops of popcorn. I don't think that's enough. It's a long movie. Let's see. Large is $8, but it gets you four scoops of popcorn. I don't know if I need that much. How much is three scoops? Wait, a medium is $7? Well, that makes... What? What? That makes, like, the most sense in terms of three scoops being the perfect amount, but why would I not just pay the extra $1 and get another scoop of popcorn? That is the clear best option. So that's what you do. You order your large popcorn and walk happily to your seat knowing you made the best choice. Well, on the surface, you had three choices. You're feeling satisfied, right? So therefore, no choice paradox, right? Well, something else is actually at play here. Something that marketers and consumer behaviorists have known about for a while. It's called the decoy effect. Basically, that medium is put there to get you to buy the large popcorn. It doesn't make sense as a pricing option by itself, but the purpose of the product isn't actually to sell itself. It's to get you to make a purchase decision you wouldn't have made before. Before, you might have settled for the small popcorn, knowing full well you could come back and get another small if you were still hungry. But because that medium was there, and offered the large popcorn as a clearly superior option to its perceived value, you opted for the large right away. So a scenario we thought started simply as a choice was actually helped by an underlying factor, 
Now, I could give you a long list of these kind of things, but I think instead we should fast forward to another meta-analysis, one that runs pretty much as a counter to our earlier one. This one by Alexander Chernov and his co-authors, someone who had long been studying something called the ideal point. They identified a few factors that would account for these variabilities and also seemed to support that if you control for them, they seem to show significance. Let's start with the ideal point. Now, white day is coming up, which means some of you are needing to buy chocolate, right? For those in our international audience, Valentine's Day here in Japan is for girls to buy their partners or friends chocolate. Then one month later, it's white day and the guys do it. So anyway, it's time to buy chocolate, and we have three guys in different situations. The first guy is me, and I know what my wife likes. She likes Lindt chocolate. I like buying her Lindt chocolate over Godiva. Is it because I get free chocolate when I walk in? Maybe. But I know what she likes. So I walk into the Lindt store, I go straight over to those extra dark chocolate truffles in the black package, walk to the register, and I'm out in like two minutes. Just kidding, I have to find myself something too. So like maybe like five minutes. Guy two has been dating his partner for a bit, so knows that his partner is allergic to nuts and prefers milk chocolate. He has heard Lint is pretty good, so walks in and sees lots of choices, but still he keeps away from the ones with nuts and finds the milk chocolate section of the store. Takes him a bit to fill the bag with his choices, but he figures it out eventually, maybe 10-15 minutes and he's gone. Guy three decided that white date was his chance to ask his Tinder date out for a first date. Cool, good job man. Unfortunately, he doesn't know anything about his date other than some small, superficial stuff and knows even less about chocolate. He's walking around the mall and comes upon the Lint store, happy that he finally found a chocolate shop. He's absolutely floored with the amount of choices. Should he get a bar? Truffles? Milk? Dark? White? Nuts? Fruit? Mint? What should he choose? He's in the Lint store for more than 30 minutes, and he isn't super confident in his choice. This is ideal point availability. I had memorized attributes I was looking for, an ideal set, and even if they didn't have the extra dark chocolate, I could have easily switched to a similar alternative in the midst of all that choice, as long as it had what I found was the most important thing. Guys two and three had a more difficult task. They needed to not only build up an ideal set of attributes, they had to compare that with everything else. The less ideal attributes they came in with, the more they have to build themselves, and the more complex task ahead of them, which could be too much for some. Essentially, the more you already came in with an idea of what you wanted to see, the more you were able to deal with the fact that there were many possible decisions. The more inexperienced you were, well, you could feel paralyzed. And that, my friends, is how we'll finally get into analysis paralysis. Now, even though analysis paralysis is under the umbrella of choice overload, analysis paralysis has been talked about for much longer, from Shakespeare's Hamlet to Catherine Craster's 1871 Centipede's Dilemma. But I think the best description of it goes to Aesop's fable called The Cat and the Fox. It goes like this. Once a cat and a fox were traveling together. As they went along, picking up provisions on the way, stray mouse here, fat chicken there, they began an argument to while away between bites. And as usually appears when comrades argue, the talk began to get personal. You think you're extremely clever, don't you, said the fox. Do you pretend to know more than I? Why, I know a whole sack full of tricks. Well retorted the cat. I admit I know one trick only, but that one, let me tell you, is worth a thousand of yours. Just then, close by, they heard a hunter's horn and the yelping of a pack of hounds. In an instant, the cat was up a tree, hiding among the leaves. This is my trick, he called to the fox, and let me see what yours are worth. But the fox had so many plans for escape, he could not decide which one to try first. He dodged here and there, with the hounds at his heels. He doubled on his tracks, he ran at top speed, he entered a dozen burls, but all in vain. The hounds caught him, and soon put an end to the boaster and all his tricks. The moral, better one safe way than a hundred on which you cannot reckon. 
Before we get too far into our analysis paralysis discussion, let's at least figure out the difference between these two things, choice overload and analysis paralysis, because a quick search will lead you down three paths. One is that choice overload and analysis paralysis are the same thing. I am not of this opinion, but I'll save that little nugget for later. Two is that choice overload is a cause of analysis paralysis, which I think we've talked about a bit, the idea that people can freeze up when given too many choices. But there's a third way to look at it that I think is really interesting for game design, and that is a small semantic difference. Choice overload makes it hard for someone to make a decision. Analysis paralysis makes it hard for someone to make the decision. Analysis paralysis, then, is not an inability for someone to choose. It's the crippling sensation in which someone is overwhelmed, anxious, or fearful that they'll make the wrong choice. In our fable, it's that the fox made a choice, but then made another choice, and then another choice, because it wondered if one was better than the other. But this can also be so unseen that they can do a great move with the cards in their hand if they just draw the right card, and they stall until they get it, every turn being worse off for it. This begs the question, whose fault is it that this happens? Is it bad game design? Is it bad players? Well, sorry to say, it's a little bit of both. Of course, good game design can limit the amount of analysis paralysis, but it has to do with the individual as well. We are going to continue using Cherna's meta-analysis as the backbone to figure out what's going on with analysis paralysis in games. Where is it coming from? What are games exemplifying some of the most common factors that promote more or less analysis paralysis? The first factor according to Cherna is decision task difficulty, which is basically what are the structural components of the decision that you need to make, which includes time, justification, number, and presentation. Time, I think, is pretty straightforward. If there's an external time constraint, sure, a player might be less confident in their decision, but they make a decision. Think about how many movies have symbolized a chess game in which someone is waiting for forever for their opponent to make a move. Well, instead, you could introduce a chess clock, and suddenly the game has to move at a brisk pace. Instead, let's say you're playing a cooperative game in which there are many choices of what you can do, say, Spirit Island. Combat this with a game like Sky Team, a game where you have four dice and they can only go a couple places. Well, you'll have to justify that to your teammates, and this increases the difficulty of making a decision. The more choices you have and expect to have to justify why you made that decision, the less likely you are to actually be able to make a decision. And that's not even including the fact that you might actually know what you're trying to do, but you're not sure how best to do it because there are multiple similar things. For example, let's say I want to attack this turn. Well, I have three cards in my hand that are attack cards. Which one to play? Well, I need to look at the cost to play the cards. I need to look at the damage. I need to look at the effect. And then I possibly need to weigh if it's worth playing now and then. I can't use it again. Or should I wait until later? Ah! But And all of these things rely on organization. How easy is it to attain this information by looking at it? It's one of the reasons that board game reviewers often critique poorly laid out designs. You could tell me that the game has lots of interesting choices, but if I can't figure out what choices I have because the card iconography is terrible, or there's so much text to read, you're making a difficult task even more difficult. These things combined are the first factor, decision task difficulty. The next factor we've already talked a bit about called choice set complexity, which is more about the values of the set of things you have to choose from rather than difficulty. This includes what we talked about the popcorn earlier, the decoy effect. People are more easily able to make decisions if there is a dominant option. And this decision is made even easier if you have an inferior option. You also are more likely to make a decision if you feel like all the decisions you can make are good ones, especially if you had a limited number of options. Think of a curated clothing shop versus something like a Walmart or an Old Navy. Even though the curated shop has a lot less options, you are sure that they've been selected for their quality and that they are trendy. There is seemingly no bad option. 
But if you go to Walmart, well, you might have more options, but do you actually have as many good options? I don't know. Lastly, and this has to do with when you have a bunch of choices, you are more likely to make a decision when you have more alignable attributes than if you have lots of choice with non-alignable attributes. What this means is that when you have a lot of choice, if more of them have something that is pretty much the same with maybe one discernible difference, it's easier to make a decision than when you have lots of choice and everything is distinct. Say, for example, you're playing a game of Sushi Go, in which you are passing the cards around drafting style. One of the cards in that game is the Maki Rolls. On the card, there is either one, two, or three Makis. The person who has the most at the end of the round gets a bunch of points. You receive your cards and your hand is five Maki and one Wasabi. Well, the Maki are quickly able to be figured out because it's always the best to take the one with the most Maki rolls on it. So the decision is quickly narrowed from five to one. This example actually combines a lot of what this factor is talking about because there is one easily discernible superior card inferior options, and the Maki cards were so similar that you were quickly able to eliminate four of the cards based on alignable attributes. That's choice set complexity. Even though Chernoff doesn't make this distinction, it's interesting that these first two factors are really based more on the situation. It brings us back to one of the original questions, right? Whose fault is analysis paralysis? Well, these are factors that would say the game design. Is the design laid out in a way that makes sense to players? Are there so many choices that are distinct from another with no clear superior choice that a player has no idea what is good in that situation? Between the structure and the value of the choices, game design can breed difficult decisions, which is a good thing. But if that structure or evaluation seems overwhelming, it can be paralyzing. But like I said earlier, it's not just the game design that can be blamed for AP, it's the players as well. The next factor Chernoff talks about is preference uncertainty. Do people have preferences going into a situation, and are they aware of the benefits of that decision? Can they prioritize? It's about the people, not the situation. The first part of this is something I already hear about a lot in the board game circles. Expertise. AP is a noob problem. I've read this a lot on forums. This idea that new board gamers are the problem here because they don't know what a good move is, so they ruin the game by needing to think about their moves. I mean, I told you earlier about the lint chocolate. If people are inexperienced, they have a harder time forming an ideal point. But you see, I only told you part of the proposed hypothesis. Because having an ideal point, knowing what you want in a situation, well, it can also have adverse effects. Because you know what you want. If that thing is not there, those who know exactly what they want are more likely to struggle in that situation. This is more apt to happen in situations with a smaller amount of decisions since others are then able to take decisions away from people. And this can really rear its head in games like worker placement games, where if someone places their workers somewhere, it becomes unavailable for others. Part of this is because studies show that the more able you are to explicitly articulate what you want and a possible trade-off, the more confident you are. I walk into Lint's, I know I need the darkest chocolate truffle. The problem is that this leads to an uncompromising mindset, meaning that it is harder for me to switch to something I see as inferior. The second and third person earlier, sure, they don't know exactly what they need, but because of that, they don't really have a strong preference for one product or another. The second guy might have thought the dark chocolate raspberry sounded good, but ah, they're sold out. Well, I guess chocolate orange will work too. This isn't to say that having an ideal point or expertise is particularly a bad thing though, because if there is a reasonable trade-off, experts are able to switch to it easily in the midst of a lot of choices. And by being an expert in something, you actually break down the structural complexity of the task at hand. And this is where I'm now going into something of an Eric side theory, because this might just be how games that weren't expected to have AP suddenly come out to the general market and have major analysis paralysis problems. I keep kind of going back and forth, analysis paralysis, AP, sorry. 
the designer and publisher will come out and say something like, we didn't experience this in playtesting or try to add an expansion or rules clarification. But my theory is that the AP problem was there all along. You just never met with it because of the playtesters. Let's use an example, my YouTube channel for Asian board games. At first, I never sorted the videos into playlists. I have a niche, and so people would come and watch who were in that niche. And some people did. They were in the niche, and they knew what these games with names like Planet 8 to see and Nana were called and wanted to see how good they were. I thought I was doing all right. Not a big channel at all, but doing okay. Except my wife suggested I sort things out a bit because I was recording more videos now, and my subscriber counts started going up. You see, even though I had thought I was doing okay getting 100 or 200 views because, hey, 100 or 200 views on a game that isn't talked about anywhere is cool, I was alienating people who didn't know where to start. What kind of game is Ito? My best chef a family game? Is it a strategy game? The difficulty to choose a video was covered up by the fact that the people who started watching my channel were people who already knew what they were searching for, hiding the flaws in my structure. The same thing can be said to playtesters with game design. Experts are able to parse through information faster to the point that they might not even realize there is structural complexity there that would leave a less experienced player paralyzed. They would look at the board full of choice, their cards full of choice, and have no idea where to even begin. And that actually leads me to the final factor, goals. What are people's intent when they are looking to make a choice? And how are they allowed to accomplish that goal? People in general want to use the least amount of effort to make a choice. It's the work smarter, not harder approach to things, if you will. And the cognitive load that it takes to actually accomplish a task can be a determining factor as to how likely people are to make the decision quickly. Let's take probably the best example of this on one end of the scale, any Vital Lacerda game. His games have diehard fans who enjoy his approach to games, offering layers upon layers of choices. There are beautiful processes like in Kanban and interesting mechanisms like in The Gallerist. But for many, these games are not in fact what they are looking for, mostly because doing an action is never a simple task. I think no game better emphasizes this than his work on Mars, which is, in my opinion, his most polarizing work in terms of critiques. While many love how their brains feel like it's been used to its fullest extent and are tired even an hour after they're done playing, others say that the exact thing is why they hate it. And it comes down to actions. Instead of just being able to do a thing, you have to be in the right section of the board, have to be able to do the thing, have the right resources, have the right blueprints, and the time is right. It's not as simple as go there, move there, play this card. You have to plan out your turns well ahead of time. As some reviewers note, it feels like the game and the players are both against you. I'm personally a fan of Lacerda games, but I think the point is true. I am not an AP-prone player, but I can never figure out what to do the first couple times I play any of his games. My turns take forever, not because I don't know how to win, but I simply don't know how to do the things that allow me to win. One way some companies in the market and some game designers have attacked the problem of getting to your goal is to simply say, here's a bunch of stuff, and you don't actually have to choose one, you simply get them all. Think of how many gift baskets you see, or how many times have you chosen the variety pack of something to give? What if you didn't have to know exactly what chocolate your date liked, you just gave them a sample of all of the best products from a store? Well, that kind of sounds like a curated collection like we talked about before, right? Suddenly, that just seems like the best option. Some game designers have taken a similar approach, with deck builders being the best example of this. Take Star Realms, where your goal is to destroy the life points of your opponents. On your turn, you don't choose a card to play, you simply play all of your cards. You do the effects on the cards, then discard and draw new cards, rinse and repeat. Sure, you have choice on your turn, but it's about what cards to buy to make your deck stronger. You don't have to choose what card in your hand gives you the best choice, or whether you want to attack or purchase this turn. 
You just do as much as your cards allow every turn in a mix of attack and purchasing. You are constantly moving towards your goal, so the game is about getting better at achieving your goal faster. So, in summary, there are four factors that can affect choice overload and analysis paralysis. Decision task difficulty, choice set complexity, uncertainty, and goals. And you can see that, like I said, some of that seems to be the fault of the situation, or in our case, the game design, but some of the blame is on the person themselves. And as Chernov explains, when these factors are controlled for in the sense that they don't affect the participants, you get the same conclusion that Schabenheim came up with, an effect of nearly zero. This means that the more we can do to limit these factors, the more likely it is that players will be able to make a decision and not have as much analysis paralysis. So how do we do that? Well, the best place to start is the end. Anyone here do mazes a lot as a kid? I did. I always felt so smart because of what I was told, even though now I know it's common knowledge. Never start a maze from the beginning. Start at the end point and work backwards. Well, same here. For both the design and playing the game, the best place to start attacking the problem of AP is the end goal. How does someone win? What are the end conditions? In terms of design, this needs to be clear to anyone playing the game. If it's points, I should be able to figure out how to get points. If it's getting achievements, I should understand how to meet those achievements. Then start working backwards. If I need achievements to win, well, what do I need to do? Do I automatically get the achievement when I meet the condition? Or is it like terraforming Mars where I need to buy the fact that I achieved this? Okay, so I know one achievement is getting five brick. So maybe I should start gathering some bricks and see what happens. Every step of this process should be understandable. You can add clever mechanisms of how to gather the brick or something, but the player needs to be able to understand that they need to get the brick in order to get the brick achievement. Unless it's part of the game, not having a clear end goal is a surefire way to increase AP. But how do you achieve this goal? Well, this is where we can meet up with business psychology. One reason board games are enjoyed is because it feels like you are doing something. There is a process that you go through and how well you achieved efficiency in that process is linked to how good you did for that game. Some games are luckier than others, but that's the gist of it, right? Well, if people who are trying to reach that end condition are overwhelmed by the amount of choice, steer them where to start. We are borrowing from the ideas of microproductivity and cognitive behavioral therapy here. Both of these place an emphasis on small steps without needing to make large jumps at any one time. The idea is that we are daunted by saying how far we have to climb, but if we just look slightly ahead, we can say, I can do that. And we do that so many times that we reach the peak of the mountain. In order to attack the structural complexity of a game and place value on certain actions over others, make the game incremental. The best examples of this working are engine builders, where the goal of the game is usually to get points or get X amount of something, but everyone starts with nothing. The beginning of the game is building up the foundations of your engine. You might start with only a card that allows you to buy an employee. Well, what are you going to do on your first turn? Buy an employee. And this is where we can add in asymmetric powers to continue steering the player just a bit further. Well, what employee should I buy? Well, my restaurant gets bonus points for any burger I sell, so maybe I should buy an employee that makes burgers. This is making it so that there is a superior option to choose. If I have three cooks to pick from that do the same thing except make different food, the burger cook is the clear best choice. But there was something else here at play, constraint. On my turn, I couldn't do anything I wanted. I didn't have 10 action choices. I had one basic choice. I feel good about the decision because it was the only decision to make. By limiting choices and providing clear best options, AP is limited. But you have to be careful here because if you overdo it, it defeats the purpose of the game. While players don't want to be bogged down by too much choice, we can't forget how this whole story began. People do value having choices. It's a paradox, remember? 
One thing to keep in mind about choice is opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is the idea that by doing one thing, you are sacrificing what could have been if you chose the other thing. For example, I am teaching this class. I am gaining the benefit of hearing myself talk, but sacrificing that I could be sleeping right now. This is a fun part of games, where by giving up one thing, you are giving up something else. By taking this card, I am giving someone else the opportunity to buy that card. By buying this, I am using the coins I could have used for that. But you need to be careful because too much opportunity cost leads to paralysis. This is because of information overload, which I'm sure some of you have heard of before. It's the idea that we can take in so much information that our brains just reach capacity. One of these effects is decision fatigue, which we talked about all the way at the beginning of this lecture. Although most of the research has been done generally, there have been some cool recent studies done with people that are specifically information-seeking individuals. For example, these might be doctors who are constantly staying on top of all the newest medications and surgical techniques and reads every article of every health magazine. It sounds like they are just doing their job, right? Well, some of these studies show that this is actually bad for their health and psychological well-being, especially if the person starts to feel tired or perceives that they have reached their capacity. What can happen is that they feel drained, unable to make decisions. They were so busy trying to decide about everything because everything needed to be thought about that they can't decide on anything. That was the point behind Obama having people pick out his clothes, right? But you're playing a game. You can't have someone pick for you. Sorry, Alpha Gamers. So how can we solve this? Well, studies have shown that one way to combat this is to actually limit user awareness. Think about how many things get shared every day on Facebook, X, TikTok. Even if you don't think you are absorbing information, you are. By filtering how much information you are getting, you receive less. So this has led to apps coming out that limit the amount of time you can spend on social media or just hide the app entirely. And that same concept can be used in games, hidden information. Board gamers are typically an information-seeking bunch. We have board game YouTube, BGG, board game podcasts, but we also are always trying to seek out information as to how to gain advantages in games. What is the current board state? What are the other players doing? What do they need? How can I stop them from winning? Well, what studies show is that one effective way of limiting analysis paralysis is by limiting how much information one can actually have at any one time. Rainer Knizia has played on this with many of his games, including Tigris and Euphrates, which used to be the number one game of all time. Although it's not technically against the rules, it's taboo to keep track of who has how many of each color behind their player's screen. You can never be sure if anyone is beating you, so you just need to move forward. Games that give you all the information at any one time is likely to lead to analysis paralysis as players who are information seeking can spend a while analyzing so that they can always have the exact right move. It's a bit of a weird anomaly that seemingly goes against the work smarter, not harder idea, but it really doesn't. We want to use the information we have to make a decision. And it actually can increase feelings of self-guilt if you are given information and then don't use it. That's what can lead even the most expert players to AP. They know they can ascertain exactly what is going on at any one time and feel like they need to do so or else they are not giving it their best. You can limit this as a designer by again hiding some of that information, but also by giving a constant influx of options that range in values. Maybe I won't take full stock of what's going on because I just know that I have a really good choice available to me right now and want to do that action. And we need to be okay with doing that action as players. Remember, Analysis paralysis is stopping forward momentum, which can not only mean taking too much time because you can't decide what to do, but also hanging on for too long so that the perfect turn can occur. In other words, analysis paralysis can be directly tied to sunk cost fallacy. Now, I think people usually associate sunk cost fallacy with buying things. I've already spent X money, what's one more pack of cards? Or I spent $50 on this board game, so I need to play it and like it or else it was a waste. 
well, in board games, this can rear its head in both good and bad ways. Of course, it's fun to try new strategies, but not at the sacrifice of enjoyment. For example, let's say you draw some cards and you get two of a set of five cards that allows you to do something that gives you 20 points. If you get all five, you get 20 points. Cool. You have no idea how long it'll take to get you the other three, but it could be cool. So you keep drawing cards on your next turn, getting, ooh, one more card. So now it's three, a couple more turns. Okay, it's four. And this is a strange thing. For some, getting that five card rare combo is cool. But it actually is a part of analysis paralysis. You spent so much time fixed on a superior thing that you have no concept of diminishing returns. You could have had way more than 20 points if you had chosen other things, but you just wanted to keep going on this strategy because you already sunk so much time into it. It goes back to what I said about ideal points. When you have something that you think is the perfect solution, you don't want to go away from that thing. Whereas someone who doesn't have that ideal solution is more able to change gears and figure out what is something at least decent in that situation. And that is where we are going to get to our last point of prevention, being okay with okay. Although board games are competitive, we can see the goal of each game as simply doing better than the last, especially if we are someone prone to overthinking. We shouldn't expect expertise, but rather continuous improvement. We can take the idea of Kaizen, that small steps on continuously improving is how to actually succeed. Even though this doesn't sound competitive, studies have shown that implementing Kaizen in a routine actually can drive competitiveness and make you a fiercer competitor. That doesn't mean to go to the opposite end of the analysis paralysis spectrum, extinct by instinct, where you just wing everything without thinking, but rather play the game, evaluate how you did afterwards, and try not to make the same mistake next time. This frame of mind gets you out of what Anne Langley calls the decision vacuum, where you become so fixated on the analysis that you mix the actual problem at hand. By asking yourself how to get 100 points, you miss all the steps on the way there and end up doing nothing. By only seeing the long term, you miss the short term. And that's where having a mindset of just continually improving, continually making small steps to a victory, is an important way to cut down on your analysis paralysis. As game designers, if you want to cut down on AP in your games, you have to give people the ability to do this. Give them opportunities to directly impact their scores in attainable ways. This doesn't have to mean that the complexity has to suffer, though. In fact, one of my favorite examples of this is Pax Premier's second edition by Cole Worley, a game that basically amounts to a tableau builder area majority game, where, like lighter games, you pay coins for cards do an effect on a card, and try to have more people on the map than other people. All these are easily and quickly readable, but the complexity comes in how to do better than others at the table. It comes in negotiation skills and flexibility. It comes in learning the timing considerations of when to do these simple actions. There's choices, but there's constraints. Throughout the game, there are superior choices of what faction to try to align with or what cards to buy, and opportunities to just get a point here or a point there. There might be times where you need to do a trade-off, but there are categories for you to find something similar. Without sacrificing complexity, Pax Premier shows that you can take steps to make the game as less AP-prone as possible. Now, for those of you who might be sitting there saying, well, wait a minute, I've played Pax Premier, and there is some AP that happens. Well, yeah, for sure, that will happen. But notice, I didn't say eliminate AP. I'm not here to tell you how to entirely prevent AP, eliminate AP from the games. Goodbye, analysis paralysis, we have solved the problem. Nope. Like a study that says we can support instead of prove, I'm just saying we can limit AP. We can take steps to make games that eliminate unnecessary AP problems that actually cause the game to be not fun. Poor layout, too many choices that might not mean anything, too much opportunity cost so that you feel guilty for not having sat there and calculated everything out. These are not just hallmarks of AP prone games, they are often games that give negative feelings to players. But I leave you with this question, do we really want to eliminate AP altogether? Isn't just a little analysis paralysis good? Think about mahjong or trick takers, rule sets that have been passed down for hundreds of years. 
There might be more efficient ways of doing things, especially shuffling and preparing each round, but there is a social reason that many people still enjoy it. It gives time for people to catch up with each other. While shuffling, you can talk about family and friends. While passing out the cards, you can talk about work or a movie you've seen lately. If board games are a social tool, then we need to give time for that. AP gives that a little bit, doesn't it? Too much and it'll be annoying, but a little bit of time when someone is thinking about their turn and everyone else has figured theirs out gives them time to do the same thing. Maybe we don't need to eliminate it altogether. Because at the end of the day, our effort actually shows how much we all truly care about this hobby of ours. Thank you so much for joining us for today's lecture series. It was a lot of fun to put together for the last two months. Ugh. If you enjoyed it, we would love for you to share it with others online and leave us reviews on your podcast app of choice. Thank you so much for listening. Arigatou gozaimashita. Until next time, jane. Ja